This is C3 Burns. I am Jessica Mason, and I am with the talented, charming, all-knowing- Beautiful. Mel Herbert, that is. How do you want to be described, Mel? Beautiful. Just send me a check. I'll give you whatever description you want. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have time to do all of the things that I need you to say about me. (laughs) C3 is Comprehensive Core Curriculum. So we try our best to parallel what is in Corpendium and then also give you our sort of real world take on that subject. So here we plan to cover thermal burns and you're going to hear some actually quite a bit of expert commentary from a burn surgeon who was a former colleague of mine at UCSF Fresno, and that's Dr. Nicole Kopari. So you'll hear a lot more from Dr. Kopari as we learn about burns together. And actually, I think we should also state, this is mostly major burns, right? You're not really covering so much of the minor burn stuff. It's mostly about the sick people. Approach to the critical patient. And speaking of that, in Corpendium style, let's start out with the approach to the critical patient, the A, Bs, and Cs. Mel, what do we need to know about managing the airway and breathing of the critical burn patient? Well, first of all, the basic concept of the burn patient, I think it's really important. These are often trauma patients. And so take a step back and think about this as a normal trauma. And then it takes all the pressure off. You're going to get to the burn part, but it's just the usual stuff. It's airway, breathing, circulation, disability, exposure. Just do all the normal stuff. Make sure, therefore, you protect your C-spine, just like you would anybody else. But then there's a little bit of a change here when you're assessing the airway. You've got to get something about that burn. Particularly if it was indoors, you've got to think about intubating early. So do they have throat pain? Does their voice sound normal? Do they already have strider? Uh-oh. Do they have neck swelling? Do they have a circumferential burn around the neck, which is going to make this thing get squeezed? Are they wheezing? Are there mucosal burns? Take a look down there. And my theory or my concept or my idea here is it's better to intubate a few too many people a little early than it is to do it late. Because if you've ever been involved in a burn to an airway late, it is really hard. So you're trying to predict the future in a lot of these patients. I think that they're starting to develop a little bit of swelling of their airway because they're in an internal fire. Intubate them early is my one thought. So Mel, you're talking to the new learner here. Explain why is it that it's so hard to intubate someone late with an inhalational burn? What do you see in that circumstance? What is so challenging? You don't see anything. That's the problem. Uh, This is mucosa that once it gets burned, it swells up so much. The third spacing is enormous and you just can't see a thing. And it can happen very quickly. They can go from, you know, just having a little bit of a hoarse, scratchy voice to you looking down there and not being able to see anything. It really is a disaster. Having said that, you don't want to intubate everybody because it's actually pretty rare to have that circumstance. But it is this enormous amount of mucosal swelling making the intubation really difficult that is the problem. Right. So it's the swelling and it's also distortion of anatomy. So it's very hard. And I want to also call out another distinction for the new learner here about when you're listening to the lungs, you're listening for wheezing, right? You should know what wheezing sounds like. Listening for strider is a little bit different. You're going to take your stethoscope, put it right over the patient's neck and listen as the patient takes a breath in. If there's strider, it's going to sound like, uh, it's this very scary sound. That's one of those things that's on that list you gave us, Mel, of very concerning exam findings that would make you want to intubate earlier rather than later. Yep, perfect. And what about succinylcholine? That always comes up. Okay, I've decided I've got to take the airway right now. But sucks, I remember something about you can't use sucks in burn patients. Yes, you can actually, because as long as it's in that acute phase within the first 24 hours, then you're not having to worry about hyperkalemia 
which is a contraindication for using succinylcholine. So if you have succinylcholine available to you, it's perfectly okay to use in that acute phase of the burn. Other things to think about for airway, just things can go badly here. So this is one of those things to take very seriously and have your surgical airway equipment ready. And then just as a little fun tip, I've seen a lot of residents who are very worried about the patient's airway and you get the history and the patient was like outdoors having a campfire and fell into the campfire. Okay, they don't have an inhalational injury. They were outdoors. They have a thermal burn. So it's very different than being inside in a house fire where you're breathing all that hot smoke. That person is way more likely to have mucosal injury and need airway management than someone who just falls into a fire. Yes, that's a really good point. It's the indoor house sort of fire thing where you get caught. Or maybe if you're a fire breather, that's probably a Maybe, yes. <laughs> and then if you're not sure of the circumstances, then think about this in anyone who's unresponsive or altered. They might be at risk for an inhalational injury. Things to look for are burns to the face, the neck, and chest. Singed nose hairs. Singed nose hairs. That's a favorite thing to check for on exam. Or carbonaceous sputum. They're coughing up something that looks sort of black and yucky. If you see that, look in the mouth. Look for erythema, mucosal sloughing, bad signs that you need to take the airway. So let's talk about breathing. So you do your normal assessment for breathing. You look at, you know, what their sad is and you look at their chest movements. And But there's some other sort of very specific things in a burn patient we need to look for. Yeah. And these are rare, but if the patient has a full thickness burn of their chest, then they can develop a compartment syndrome of the chest. Okay, not right away, but it's something that they could develop. And then the other thing to worry about with breathing, hopefully you're not encountering this if you're managing the patient for just an appropriate time in the emergency department before they go to a burn center, but all the fluids that burn patients tend to get can put them at risk for pulmonary edema. Once again, hopefully we're not even getting to that point in the emergency department. That's more of a burn ICU thing, but be aware of it. Now, what do you need to know about the circulation? How do we manage that in the initial resuscitation? Again, think of it as a normal trauma. I want to get a couple of big large bore IVs in there and I'm going to assess for, you know, I'd like bleeding from something that there was there explosions. I'm doing my normal trauma stuff, which we really know how to do. And then if there's a significant amount of burn, then you're going to give them some fluid. 500 mils of lactated ringers, assuming that they don't have any other cardiopulmonary disease. And then we're going to spend some time later when we do disability and exposure, and we're going to work out how big this burn is, and we're going to work out what fluid to give. You don't have to give it all right now. It's not like they're going to have no fluid left at the beginning. This takes time for them to get these sometimes significant fluid losses. So a little bolus at the beginning is enough to start this resuscitation. Okay, I want to jump in here with one comment. As this episode went through peer review, and it went through a couple layers here, Stuart Swadron listened to it, our burn surgeon, Nicole Kopari, who you will be hearing from shortly, she listened to it and gave us feedback. Both of them sort of flagged this as, okay, let's be careful about how we teach this initial fluid bolus, even if it's just a half liter bolus of fluid, in that initial resuscitation. The reason why this is on everyone's mind is because burn patients tend to get way too much fluid, way more than they actually need, and that creates problems down the line. So I think all that we're saying here is that in this initial resuscitation phase, as you're just going through your A, Bs, and Cs and figuring out what's wrong with this patient and how are we going to manage them, let's cognitively offload math problems. Okay, we're not going to be calculating total body surface area and the Parkland formula. We're not doing that in this moment of the initial assessment and resuscitation. 
So if for now you want to just hang a little bit of fluid and not bolus it, but slow drip it in, I think that's okay. And then you work out the math later. Okay, now remember, a patient with purely a burn should not be hypotensive. If they're hypotensive, you have to think about shock, hemorrhagic shock, neurogenic shock. A burn does not cause hypotension. And for a burn, fluid resuscitation should be slow and steady. So just keep this in mind. What we're saying here is it's okay to start a little bit of fluid now to cognitively offload the math that you're going to be doing a few minutes from now. You can work that out in a little bit once you have more time and the patient is stable. Another good tip for circulation if there's extremity burns, especially if they're circumferential, is to feel the pulses and then to mark where those pulses are. Because as that patient gets resuscitation and is at risk for developing compartment syndrome, that's going to be something they go back and try to check those pulses and make sure that they're still there. And so if you find them and mark them early on, I think that's helpful for people managing the patient down the line from you. All right. So next is a disability. And it turns out, particularly in sort of modern society, everything you burn is toxic. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the burn you have to worry about. What else do I have to worry about? The toxic exposures to worry about are carbon monoxide and cyanide. So really think about this. If the patient was an enclosed structure fire, also, if you're getting labs, which are a good idea on any critically ill patient, and they are very acidotic, profound acidosis is a clue for cyanide toxicity. And also this can progress quickly to cardiovascular collapse. So you got to have a high index of suspicion and start treatment empirically just based off of the story and how they look and how bad their labs are. And let me be more specific here. Let me give you the specific indications when you're going to give that cyanokit. If the patient has altered mental status or cardiac arrest or a profound lactic acidosis, you're just going to give it. Yeah, all of those plastics that are in your house that are on your couch and stuff, all of this stuff when it burns CO2 and carbon monoxide, bad. All right, so then... We fully expose the patient. We look for other injuries again. One more time. Can I say it one more time? Think of this as just a normal trauma patient. Don't get freaked out. And then we're going to do some specific things about the burn on top of that. Key concepts. As promised, I did interview a burn surgeon. And let's just bring her to the bedside for a minute and listen to how she thinks about that initial evaluation of the patient and then also estimating total body surface area of a burn. What's important to you? What should we be looking for? The most important thing is to ignore the burn. Ignore the burn. Take care of the patient first. Everybody sees the burn and gets really nervous because you don't often see burns and they scare people. The patient, it hurts. But really what you want to do is you want to take care of the patient first. We really want providers to go through the ABCDs of trauma resuscitation. We want to make sure their airway is okay, make sure that they're breathing, make sure that they have good circulation, make sure that we've exposed them and looked for other injuries, and then obviously get into disability. All of that is done before we really get into even assessing the burn. Part of your secondary survey should then be to get the weight of the patient and calculate the total body surface area burn. In calculating the total body surface area burn, we count each extremity. So the entire circumferential arm is 9%. The anterior leg is 9%. The posterior leg is 9%. The entire anterior torso is going to be 18%. And the entire head is 9%. 
So essentially from your hairline forward, four and a half percent from your hairline back, four and a half percent. A quick and easy way to also do that is just take the patient's own hand. An entire palmar surface, including the fingers, is 1%. So you can do a rough estimate of how the percentage of a burn is by using the patient's own hand. And remember, it's the patient's hand, not your own hand. So those numbers probably sound familiar to most of our listeners, and that's because you just went through what's called the rule of nines. We have an illustration of this to help jog your memory, but I wanted to ask you whether or not we can apply that same rule to pediatric patients. So it changes a little bit in kids, but honestly, it probably doesn't matter because it's a rough estimate. We are terrible, notoriously terrible at predicting what the size of a burn is. So really, it's just kind of to get just your rough estimate. Determining total burn surface area is always hard. And we actually have evidence, as she noted, that we're really quite bad at this. And part of this is because this is a dynamic thing. So when you first see the patient, you don't really know the full extent of the burn, even if you do a good job. So just remember the rule of nines, and then you can use that palm of the hand thing, their palm, not yours, and try and work out an estimate. We don't include first degree burns, and this is where it can be hard. It's like, is that a first degree burn or a second degree burn? It might not be obvious for a number of hours. So don't freak out too much. Try and do a reasonably good job, but know that once they get to a burn center, they're going to spend a lot more time looking at this patient and determining the exact extent of the burn. Okay, I'll give you my summary on approach to the critical patient and key concepts. Remember to treat them like a trauma patient. So ABCs and full exposure. Managing the airway early. Don't wait till it's too late when there's too much edema and you're going to have to resort to a surgical airway. Be on the lookout for toxic exposures. Start the fluids. Just start a half liter of LR and then calculate the TBSA and the fluid resuscitation later on. So just cognitively offload that for the time being. And then remember, burns hurt. So treat them with pain medication. And I would add one other thing. A clean, sterile sheet, if you can, over the patient. Knowing that, you know, also that hospitals are really cold and they can get cold really quickly. So you might want to chuck a blanket over the top of that. But don't put goop on. You know, when I was in training, we were all about putting on goop, sulfur sulfadiazine and all this stuff. And the burn surgeons would come and say, stop that. Please stop it. Because when they get to the burn center, we just take all that stuff off so we can do our assessment. And I should say, I said clean and sterile. That is my old school brain thinking, because that's what we used to say. Basically a clean sheet, one that hasn't been on the floor, because they're sterile enough if they come out of the tumble dryer at your hospital. Chapter 2. Diagnosis. Okay, history is actually important in this circumstance, because we want to know when this occurred, because this is a dynamic process. It changes over time. I'm not so worried about a person's airway. If it happened four hours ago, it's probably past the time where I'm going to be worried about you know, them collapsing from an airway problem. So I want to know that. I want to know the mechanism, particularly was this inside? Was this outside? What did they look like at the time? What's their mental state? All this kind of stuff you would do for a normal trauma case. I want to know, are they getting better neurologically or are they getting worse neurologically, for example? And I obviously want to know about their comorbidities. What else is going on this person? I'm not going to flood this person with lots of fluids if they've got an ejection fraction of 10. So again, just normal history and physical stuff. And I do want to sort of, as I say, used to say the residents, paint a picture for me. Do you have a pretty good idea of what went on there? I want to know the picture. This was a person who was inside and it was burning for a long time and they ran out of the house and then they collapsed. I'm thinking, you know, this person's got a metabolic problem. Maybe they've got that cyanide thing. So paint me the story of what went on versus, you know, I was screwing around with some beers and buddies and I 
walked into the fire and now I've got a big burn on my legs. Paint me the picture. Exam. So let's talk about the exam. And actually, let's have Dr. Nicole Kopari explain to us how burns are categorized and what that means. When we're talking about burns, there are multiple different ways to kind of classify burns. The first way is easy with the first, second, and third degree burns. Or you can also call them either superficial, deep, or superficial, partial thickness, or full thickness. So thank you for going easy on me, because as you described, there's first, second, and third degree burns. But then there's this other nomenclature where there's superficial partial thickness, deep partial thickness, and deep burns. And it's kind of confusing to me how these potentially overlap. So it sounds like what you're saying is that it actually doesn't matter too much which terminology we use. I don't think it matters to me. We'll go back and forth amongst ourselves on if whether we're calling this superficial or a second degree. The real key to note is that first degree burns and first degree burns are burns like a sunburn. It doesn't blister. They're often very painful, but we don't actually even include those in our assessment of a burn patient. So first degree burns are not factored into total body surface area calculations. Correct. First degree. So a first degree burn, like I said, it really is just like a sunburn. It really only involves the epidermis. It doesn't blister. It may peel or desquamate in a couple of days. And we've all noticed that if you've ever had a sunburn and a couple of days later, your skin is peeling. They're red. It's painful, but it usually heals within three to five days. So the treatment for a first degree burn is going to be a moisturizing lotion, potentially some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, and typically no topical antibiotics. Second degree. For a second degree burn, that's the superficial partial thickness burns. That's where the burn is going to go through the dermis and into the papillary layer of the dermis. It's pink. It's moist. You may have blisters. It's often painful. And these burns usually heal within two to three weeks. You're not going to have a lot of scarring or functional limitation for this. So the treatment for these wounds are local wound care and pain medication. Recap. First degree. Okay, so for first degree, this is pretty simple. It looks like a sunburn. It's going to heal on its own. Second degree. Then we move into a little deeper layer, superficial partial thickness. Again, these are going to heal pretty well with minimal scarring. They're going to look pink. They might have some blisters. They're going to be painful. Now we get into the deeper burns. So deep partial thickness burns, they go deeper than the papillary layer of the dermis. They go into the reticular layer of the dermis. How do they look? Instead of pink and blistery, they look white and leathery. These are going to heal in a few weeks, but these ones are treated with excision and grafting to prevent functional disabilities down the line. Okay, so that's first degree. Second degree, which I'm including superficial partial thickness and deep partial thickness. Third degree. And now, Nicole, tell us about third degree burns. A third degree burn is going to be a burn that extends through the dermis into the fat. It's usually white. It's dry. It's leathery. It's insensate. Oftentimes, you'll see like coagulated vessels or no capillary refill on the extremity. It's severely debilitating, and it heals only by wound contracture. So the treatment for these burns are early excision and grafting. Labs. Let's talk about labs. And in many cases, for minor burns, you're not going to get any labs whatsoever. But in the sicker patients, the more severe burns, you're going to get some basic labs. This is going to be helpful initially, but also for trending. You're going to want to see their CBC, their electrolytes, 
a CK, especially if you're worried for developing rhabdomyolysis at some point. And the other thing to think about, again, are those toxic exposures. So do you need to check a carboxyhemoglobin level? Do you need to check for cyanide? And remember that you don't just run a cyanide level. That won't help you. I don't even know if you can do that. If you could, it might not come back for days. So the labs that actually should raise high suspicion for cyanide are a high lactic acid and a severe metabolic acidosis. And if that happens, what do you do, Mel? How do you treat it? Well, I went to corpendium because I wasn't sure what's first line anymore because this hydroxycobalamin, which was a new thing not that long ago in my brain, is now considered first line. And so the dose is, you know, five grams IV over 30 minutes, but you don't really need to know the dose. You just need to know that hydroxycobalamin is now first line. And then there are these cyanide kits, the old school kits, which are considered second line. But you should have hydroxycobalamin in most of your emergency apartments in 2022. Yes, 2022, that's where we are. (laughs) He says as they're recording in 21. (laughs) And you don't have to have this memorized. So you could look it up in Corpendium and definitely involve a toxicologist if you are concerned for cyanide, which once again, you should be if they are profoundly acidotic with a high lactic acid level. Finally, on the subject of diagnosis, we have to talk about something that's not so pleasant, and that is the concern for non-accidental trauma. So you specialize in pediatric burns, and so we have to talk about non-accidental trauma. Can you review with us some of the patterns that we need to be on the lookout for that should be a red flag for a workup for non-accidental trauma? Yeah, so that's a great point that you bring up. And about a third of our patients actually have some abuse or neglect associated with their injuries. So especially for the pediatric patients, we're always on the lookout. You in the emergency department are seeing that patient front and center. And if the patient has a, you know, not a normal response to their parents, you know, not a normal interaction with care providers, those are always kind of red flags for us. But from a burn standpoint, things that we're looking for that suggest a pattern of abuse are burns that are linear in demarcation. So imagine a child that's held into a bathtub. Because of the pressure that they're being held down, they're not able to kick and splash. So you don't see splash marks, but you really see a linear line. Other things that you look for are sparing of flexure creases. So behind the knees or at the wrists, something that kind of shows that the child was kind of trying to flex and get away from the hot tissue. The other thing that we see is like surface contacts that protect from the burn. And when I mean that, I think about a child who was put into a hot bathtub. That bathtub, the water is displaced from the child sitting in the bathtub. So you're going to see sparing of the butt and sparing potentially of the heels or the bottom of the feet. You're also then going to see sparing behind the knees because the kid kind of contracted their legs up. So those are the three telltale signs that make us really concerned about abuse. It's the linear demarcation without splash marks, the sparing of the flexor creases, and then also the sparing of the contact surfaces, such as the butt and the bottom of the feet. You know, I guess other things that we would kind of think of That's kind of the typical scald pattern that we're looking for, but other signs of abuse or concerns for abuse are patients who have a delayed presentation to the hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, most parents, if their kid gets a little burn, they're going to come to the hospital because the kid, it hurts so bad. 
So something where the parents took care of it for two or three days at home before they were brought in. The other things that we look for are contact burns. Say an iron were to fall off the ironing board. That iron bounces once it hits a hard surface and falls somewhere else. Very hard to get a brand pattern Mm -hmm. into a child. So something that has extended duration of contact are concerning for neglect. And then the other things, other injuries, other bruises, cigarette marks, things like that always really raise red flags. Chapter 3, Treatment. When it comes to treatment, I think it makes sense to break these up into three categories. So first we'll talk about airway, then fluids, and finally the actual wound, how we're treating the actual burn wound. Airway. So Mel, we've touched on this already. Give us a reminder. What do we need to know about managing airway? Okay, so airway, think of it the normal way. You're going to do your normal assessment and don't freak out. But now I'm going to think about... Could the airway be burned? So I want to look for any evidence of distress. Is there wheezing? Is there strider? Is the person not able to talk? If I get them to open their mouth and look in there, do I see lots of burns already? And I've got to anticipate that that's going to get worse, that there's going to be a lot of swelling. So if there's any evidence that suggests that this person has an airway inhalational injury, I think you should intubate early and often. Okay. Now, there's two types of way to think about these inhalational injuries. You can burn the upper airway, and this makes it a real problem anatomically seeing into the airway as it swells up because of all that mucosal edema. But there's also burns that can occur, you know, sort of below your cords, and you can get pulmonary edema, and often the two go together. So this is what we're trying to anticipate. Now, we don't want to over-intubate people, but if the history suggests that it was an enclosed area, and you've got early signs that this uh, person is starting to develop some edema in their upper or lower airway, I suggest that you intubate early. You'll probably be on the phone with a burn surgeon at that point, and they can help guide you. But I can tell you most of them, if there's a transport time that's longer than more than going up to the third floor, like you're going to put this person in a helicopter, you're going to put in an ambulance. Generally, there's lots of discussion about airway, and it usually falls down to better to intubate a bit too often than to have that person lose their airway in an ambulance halfway across town. And when you said you're on the phone with a burn surgeon, I just had a flashback to one of my burn surgery attendings when I was a resident telling me that if you're going to intubate, try to get at least a seven and a half size and a tracheal tube because they can do their bronchoscope through a seven and a half or larger tube. So larger is better when it comes to burns so that they can bronch through it. Excellent point. They tell you that every time it makes their life so much easier. They can change it, of course, but if you've got a big swollen airway, you don't want to be pulling ET tubes in and out of that slothy, horrible upper airway. Fluids. What about fluids? Talk to me about fluids. Well, actually, let's have Dr. Kopari do the review on fluid resuscitation. I think the one point for us to remember that's major is two large bore peripheral IVs. That's what we need for every trauma patient and, of course, for our burn patients. So Dr. Kopari is going to talk about how We should start fluids from the pre-hospital care standpoint and then what we do in the emergency department. Actually, what the ABA has proposed is that we kind of forget all about the TBSA in pre-hospital. If you think you have a large burn and the kid is five years old and younger, we want them to be started on a resuscitation fluid of 125 cc's per hour. If the child is between the age of six and 14, We want them to be started on a resuscitation fluid of 250 cc's per hour. And if the kid is more like an adult and 14 above, we start them on 500 cc's per hour. 
And the reason is that we came up with those numbers is because we're all just terrible at predicting the TBSA. But that comes again, as I was talking about that as part of your secondary survey. So after you've calculated their weight and potentially gotten their TBSA, then you start to talk about their resuscitation fluid. And we would prefer resuscitation fluid as lactated ringer. We try to stay away from the normal saline because of the volume of fluid that these burn patients potentially get, but realistically give them whatever you have. So that recommendation is for pre-hospital care. There's a lot going on in the pre-hospital setting. We want to try to offload fluid calculation that's complicated and very error prone. And let's save that for when the patient arrives in the emergency department. And actually, I'm recommending that we just start the initial resuscitation with a small fluid bolus for a critically ill patient. And then let's go back and focus on the total body surface area and the actual fluid resuscitation. So once the patient's arrived and stabilized, what do we do next? We calculate their true TBSA, and then we use the Parkland formula. And even there, we've gotten rid of the four mLs per kilogram per percent burn. We've actually adjusted it down, and we're resuscitating people at two mLs per kilogram per percent burn because of the phenomenon of fluid creep. Patients get a lot more fluid than what we initially estimated. And that fluid creep causes a lot of problems, abdominal compartment syndrome, compartment syndromes in extremities, elevated intraocular pressure. So we are much better now at trying to give them less fluid to prevent those complications. Okay. So just remember that giving too much fluid is also a problem. And so because of that, there's a movement to use the modified Brook formula instead of the Parkland formula. And that's actually what she mentioned when she said we're using half the amount of fluid now, which is 2% per kilo per percent burn. And in pediatric burns, it's actually not two, it's three mLs per kilo per percent burn. Why, you ask? Why should kids get three when adults get two? Because they have more body surface area, so it's to compensate for that. And if it's an electrical burn, then it's even more. For electrical burns, you're giving four mLs per kilo per percent burn. This helps to account for likely further unrecognized burn in an electrical injury. And then just remember to use lactated ringers because it's going to be generally a lot of fluid and you don't want to cause a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis by using, quote unquote, normal saline. Exactly. And this idea of using too much fluid is sort of a new thing. We thought you could never give too much fluids, but you certainly can. And also, again, don't worry, these are ballparks. These are to start the fluid resuscitation, but the burn people are not going to use these to continue the resuscitation. They're going to look at things like urine output and hematocrits and other stuff. So this is just to get the ball rolling. Wound treatment. All right, so we've talked about airway, fluids. Now let's talk about the wounds themselves. Let's talk to Dr. Kopari about the criteria for who should be transferred to a burn center. The American Burn Association recommends a few things that are an automatic referral to a burn center. Those include partial thickness burns that are greater than 10% of the total body surface area burn, burns that involve face, hands, feet, genitals, perineum, or any major joint. And the reason for that is all of those burns require intensive therapy from the burn team. Any burn that's a third degree burn would be recommended to be referred to a burn center. Any burns that includes electrical, such as lightning burns, or chemical burns should really be seen by a burn specialist. 
patients that have airway involvement or concerns for inhalational injury. And then we get into the part of patients that should be seen at a burn center include those, anyone with the psychological component, emotional component, social component, or needs for intensive rehab should be seen. I also talk about if your hospital isn't capable of taking care of a kiddo, you should probably be seen at a burn center. And then the last one that they recommend is that burn injuries that pre-existing medical disorders or other ones that have like trauma with them. So about a fourth of our burn patients actually will have concomitant trauma. Those are the patients that we want to make sure that first we're ignoring the burn and taking care of the patient, but then taking care of the burn at a burn center. As we're getting ready to transfer the patient, package them up and send them to you, what would be your preference as to how we temporarily cover those wounds? I don't want you to do anything to them. I just want you to cover them with a dry, clean sheet. Keep them warm for me. If you're going to do wound care, Xeroform and Bacitracin is fine, but you have to then remember that as soon as they get to the hospital for me, I'm going to have to take all of their dressings off and reassess the wound. So there really is no reason to do anything other than cover them with a dry, clean sheet. One of the associations that we're taught about in emergency medicine is between burns and compartment syndrome. Now, it's my understanding this happens in a couple of different ways. One, it's the way that you described earlier, where patients tend to get a lot of fluids, and this puts them at risk down the line for developing, like you said, an abdominal compartment syndrome or elevated ocular pressures. This is not something that happens during their emergency department course. But the other one that we do have to think about is based off of certain burn types and locations and the burn pattern, and I was hoping you could review that for us. If you have a burn that's circumferential and a full thickness burn, that's when you have to worry about the potential for compartment syndrome. So with those, we recommend that you elevate that extremity and then keep checking pulses. You are not going to get into trouble with losing pulses or having such a deep burn to cause compartment syndrome until about that six hour mark. So if you can get the patient to me within six hours, you're more than likely not going to have to worry too much about that circumferential burn. So obviously we've been talking a lot about the person with major burns, significant burns, burns that need to go to a trauma center. But what about the ones that don't need to go to a burn center? Let's go back now and talk about second degree burns. In particular, I have to ask about blisters. And I want details here. Should I rupture the blisters? Should I leave them alone? Which ones should I think about rupturing? And what do I do? How do I do it? I need the details. The easiest thing to say is if the blister is large enough that it's going to rupture on its own, go ahead and pop it. If the blister covers a joint and impedes the range of motion, go ahead and pop it. All right. So those are really the things that we talk about in getting rid of those blisters. And I usually... I shouldn't use the term pop it. What I really mean is unroof it. We want all of that dead skin from the blister to be removed. So your dressings actually are treating the underlying burn. Nicole, can you describe for me exactly how do you unroof a blister? Yeah, that's great. So usually what I will do is I'll just take a little debridement kit, a little sharp scissors, iris scissors or something like that. And I remove all of the blister and you want to remove all of the skin all the way back until it's back to the intact non-injured skin. 
So creating a little hole in the blister actually introduces potentially infection, right? You're letting in the environment into this initially sterile wound environment. So once you have a hole in that blister, you really want to get all of that skin off. So your antimicrobial or topical dressings actually touch the bottom of the burn. What about just draining out the fluid that's in the blister, but leaving the skin on the top as a sort of biologic dressing? Is that a bad idea? That's a bad idea. Bad idea. So we actually teach that to our patients once they're healed and their skin is very fragile. But if you think about it in the context of that burn is already injured and potentially dead, you want to actually remove that skin. Does unroofing a blister hurt? I mean, think about it from the patient's perspective. They've just gotten a burn. They have a big blister. It hurts. And now you're going to cut into it with scissors? That sounds painful. It actually doesn't hurt at all. That skin is already damaged and there's no sensation in that top layer of skin. But I totally agree with you. This is where kids especially are very nervous about it. And this is where we really rely on the emergency department to do some sort of anxiolytic or pain medication. Because what we're trying to do is make sure that kid or that adult is set up for good wound care for the rest of their hospitalization. And if that first debridement goes poorly, we have a really difficult patient to take care of. So, of course, we're not only going to reassure the patient, but we're going to treat their pain and we're going to treat their anxiety. Let's talk about now how we dress the wound after we've unroofed the blister. Yeah. So the next thing that we usually do is we take like bacitracin, neosporin, otherwise known as triple antimicrobial, and we will put that directly onto the dressing. It's not a good idea to put it directly onto the burn because the burn is moist and it kind of just runs all over. So you want to put it onto your dressing and your dressing can be anything. We often use Xeroform because we have easy access to Xeroform, but certainly in another facility, you might just have some sort of non-adherent, adaptic, Vaseline-impregnated gauze, even Telfa, it would be an adequate dressing. You put the bacitracin on there or the neosporin, put the dressing on the wound and then secure it somehow. And are you aiming to really just get that petroleum-infused gauze on the area that you've unroofed on the open wounds? Because I would be a little bit worried if there's ointment getting on intact skin, even though it may be erythematous and burned, that that could actually cause some skin breakdown. Is that a concern? Yeah. So on the areas of erythema, you don't need this. You would just need like a moisturizing lotion. But if a little bit of the bacitracin gets on that area, it's not going to bother it. These dressings that we're just talking about are really intended to be once a day dressings. So the patient's going to potentially get a bath or a shower or at least some sort of wound cleansing once a day. The dressing comes off and then you slap on a new dressing. We see a ton of minor burns and patients often ask us, what can I put on this to help make it feel better? Patients often ask about aloe vera or other topical ointments or lotions. What do you recommend for first degree burns? So I'm not a huge fan of aloe vera. I really find that it dries out the skin and sometimes causes itch. But I also tell patients it's their body. They can do whatever they want and they can try different things. Our recommendation is an emollient moisturizing lotion. So something that has an oil base that's a little bit greasy. So I like, I'll give you an example of cutisarin, Aveeno, cocoa butter, Vaseline intensive therapy. Any of those are actually okay from a lotion standpoint. I tell patients that I want them to be moist, but not sliding down their hallways because they're so greasy. 
Okay, so I just want to emphasize one part of that, and that is SSD. And silver sulfidiazine has been used for about 40 years on burns and is still used by a lot of people. But I cannot find one paper that says it is any good. It is all bad. And it's sort of driven me crazy over all the years doing the EMA courses and stuff. And it's like, here's another paper that shows SSD doesn't work. And yet people continue to use it. Here is a burn surgeon saying, stop using it. It leaves tattooing. It's not as good for wound healing as many other things. Silver sulfidiazine is a dinosaur looking for a tar pit, as Billy would say. <laughs> now, on the subject of antibiotics, in which cases do you recommend treating with oral prophylactic antibiotics? Never. Really, never. Not even the diabetic with a foot burn. Correct. Okay. Yeah, we don't treat our burns with any type of systemic antibiotics unless they're showing signs of infection. Usually burns themselves are initially sterile. And so obviously that is going to change if you have a traumatic injury, say with an open joint or an open fracture, you would be treating that injury, but not actually the burn itself. Again, I like to say I'm a burn doctor. I'm only skin deep and so are my wounds. So make sure that we're just treating topically. So another good point, you know, prophylactic antibiotics have gone the way of the dodo. We don't do prophylactic antibiotics. It doesn't help. Now that's not to say that if they don't develop a cellulitis or get infected and get septic, because they're at very high risk that you don't give antibiotics. Of course you do. But initially, we don't do that. And tetanus, yes, please give tetanus if they need it. These are tetanus-prone wounds. Right. And let's be specific about that, Mel. So everyone's going to get a Tdap because everyone who enters the emergency department, it seems, gets a Tdap. But what about tetanus immunoglobulin? The Corpendium chapter recommends giving tetanus immunoglobulin if it's a contaminated wound and it's been more than five years since the last Tdap, or if the patient isn't sure if they completed their primary series or maybe they didn't complete their primary series, then you're giving tetanus immune globulin. The other special category is for patients who have immunodeficiency or diabetes. If they have a contaminated wound, regardless of when they had their last Tdap, you're still going to give them the tetanus immune globulin. And I think this is probably underprescribed. Chapter 4. Deep Dive. So Dr. Kopari already covered describing the depth of a burn. And I want to point out that we actually have a really nice illustration of this from one of our artists here at MRAP, Jay Weiner, that shows how deep the burn is going into the skin layers and which type of burn that would be. So remember, you could say first degree, second degree, third degree, or you could use the other terminology, which sort of branch points, second degree burns into superficial partial thickness and deep partial thickness burns. And third degree would be analogous to a deep burn. So now we have to go back to that total body surface area estimation of the burn. So uh, take us through it again, just one more time for fun. Okay. So there's a few ways that you can do this. You could do the hand method, the hand estimation, where you take the patient's hand, including their fingers, and the palmar surface of their hand is 1%. So if you could imagine stamping their body with their own hand and just add 1% for each hand stamp. I like that one. It's nice and easy. And remember, that's not counting the areas of first degree burn. So only second or third degree. There's a rule of nines, which I'm not going to explain it verbally. Just look at the diagram, which we have posted in Corpendium. And then there's something else. It's called the Lund and Browder method. And I have to say, I looked at the papers on this and I was like, no one uses, I mean, I've never even heard of this. I was like, no one uses this. This is ridiculous. 
But then I came to work at a new emergency department here in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm at JPS Health. And uh, what do they use, Mel? London Browder. That's what they of use. Of course they do. Yeah, of course. You brought this up to me like a few weeks ago. Yeah. Mel, do you, have you used this? Have you heard of this? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. I'd never heard of this. And it's super complicated. Yeah. That's why I've never heard of it. Yeah, well, basically it's a diagram and you basically take a look at the diagram, take a look at the patient and then sort of paint by numbers and shade in where the burn is. And it differentiates by age how much percent that corresponds to. So that's the key difference there. I also want to point out that this is Lund and Browder, named after two burn surgeons from like the 1940s, not to be confused with London, the city, nor a London broil, which is a broiled flank steak. And it didn't even originate in London. It's from North America. Just saying. So when we got this back from peer review, I think uh, we gave Dr. Kopari a good laugh on this one. We had some fun with Lund and Browder, but it turns out I got some laughing emojis from her because uh, basically every burn center uses Lund and Browder. And apparently we're the only ones in the world who haven't heard of it. And then in pediatrics, it's basically a very similar thing, right? You modify it because kids' heads are gigantic compared to their bodies and this kind of stuff. And in Corpendium, also in the thermal burns chapter, we have an illustration that shows how to get this TBSA calculation in pediatric patients. Okay, so now we've talked about the depth of the burn, a total body surface area calculation, and these are all factors leading into us figuring out how to do the fluid resuscitation, right? Because you need to know what type of burn you've got. You don't count the first degree. You need to know how much you've got. And now you can actually do the calculation. So fluid resuscitation, we've got the Parkland formula. We've got the modified Brook formula, which is half Parkland, as uh, now been stated by Jess. And now Dr. Kapari is going to tell us the common mistakes that she sees us making in the emergency department. I think the most important thing is that when we're talking about fluid resuscitation is that fluid resuscitation gets initiated early. Any delay in that initiation of fluid really results in patients who require more fluid resuscitation and potentially multi-organ system failure because of the delay in resuscitation. I like to explain it as if you have a cylinder and you have a hole on the bottom of that cylinder, you want to make sure that the fluid you're dumping in the top of the cylinder is going in at a slow and steady pace. You don't want to just dump a whole glass of fluid into that cylinder because it'll just spill out the top. And that's the same way that we look at resuscitation with burns. I like to think of the body as the cylinder, the Foley catheter as the hole in the bottom. You want to be pouring your fluid in at a slow progressive rate versus giving boluses. So in burns, we always say no boluses for burns unless the patient's hypotensive. And if the patient is hypotensive, you probably should look for another reason. Do they have concomitant trauma where they're actually bleeding? Were they dehydrated at baseline because they were using drugs or they haven't been fed in 12 hours? Things like that will cause hypotension and require fluid boluses, but no other fluid boluses in burns. And I think that that's probably the most important thing that we can think of in the pre-hospital or pre-burn unit transfer. And then it's, again, really important to keep track of how much fluid and when that fluid was initiated. I thought one point that she brought up that was really interesting is that burn patients acutely should not be hypotensive. There's no reason for them to be hypotensive. And if they are, you need to worry that something else is going on. Yeah, it takes time to lose all of this fluid, even though you can lose a lot of it over a day or two. 
but it doesn't happen in that first few hours. And so you think about, you know, is their spleen exploded and bleeding into the belly or something like that? Right. Concomitant trauma. Finally, I think we have to mention escarotomy. Not that it's very commonly done, actually very rarely done in the emergency department, but we should probably just mention it here because people are going to want to know, when should anyone really think about doing an escarotomy from the emergency department? Yeah, this is one of those things that hopefully you never have to do. Certainly, if you're thinking about doing it, if you're losing pulses, if the person's got a circumferential chest injury and you just, their pressures are getting really high and you can't ventilate, then you need to talk to a burn surgeon. This is not something that we should jump in and do willy-nilly because having done one of these in the emergency department with a trauma surgeon, sometimes these can bleed an enormous amount and you need some surgical skills to help you out. But if you're in a place where you have to do it to save a limb, to save a life, then you have to do it. But I would suggest getting the burn surgeon on the phone because uh, it's not so simple as one would think. It's not just taking a blade and opening up this tight compartment it can actually result in significant morbidity if you do it wrong. So uh, get some help. Call a friend. Yeah, this for me is in the same category as a cranial burr hole. Like, I hope I never have to do it. And if I'm in that rare circumstance where there's going to be a very long transport time and I'm forced to do it, then I'm going to do it in consultation with the specialist over the phone or over FaceTime or various video chat (laughs) methods. Exactly. FaceTime for short. Now, where do I put the scalpel exactly? Right there? How hard do I push down? Okay. Hopefully the patient is sedated. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a good idea. Chapter 5. Burn Case. Let's do a case. This one comes to us from Dr. Jimmy McHugh from UCSF Fresno. And as you listen, you can actually take a look at a photograph of what this patient looks like so you can see the burns that we are going to describe. So what brought you to the hospital today, Mom? So I'm here today because um, my daughter was eating hot noodles and accidentally spilled it on her brother on his left shoulder. Did you do anything at home to dress the burn? Um, I wasn't home at the, at the time, but the, uh, their dad was, so he helped, with the, he helped rinse him off with water, and he applied some aloe vera and some um, neosporin. Mm-hmm. Okay, Melsey, you heard the case. Now you're looking at a photograph of this patient Tell me what you see. Uh, So I see this poor little kid who has got what looks like um, second-degree burns. There's a lot of erythema. There's a lot of blister formation, neck, chest. So this looks like, you know, a fairly extensive second-degree burn of the neck and chest. Yeah. I would think right off the bat, let's take care of the patient's pain, right? We're not worried about an inhalational injury. We're not managing his airway, but definitely worried about getting this patient comfortable because it's very traumatic for him. So let's get some pain medications on board. This is someone who definitely needs to be seen by a burn surgeon and perhaps even admitted to the hospital, depending on how the patient's tolerating this amount of pain. What do you think? Yeah, with a little kid like this, especially around the neck where you can get contractures and you can even get sort of the neck, the bottom of the sort of jaw stuck to the chest, and that can happen reasonably quickly. I'm anxious about this. I want a burn surgeon to help me out on this one before I send anybody like this home. It's not actually big enough to be so worried about like, you know, fluid resuscitation and all that kind of stuff. But it's in a particularly difficult area and it's in a kid. I want some help. Yeah, this is a pretty straightforward second degree burn, except that it's a pediatric patient. So if your hospital's not equipped to take care of pediatric patients, obviously you're going to transfer them. But also this sort of makes you think, wow, this kid might need some additional social or emotional support or interventions. 
and that's going to be best done in a burn center. He's obviously going to need to see a burn surgeon at some point. So if that could be arranged, I think it makes sense to transfer the patient to a burn center. Yeah, just looking at this, I think pain control is going to be your biggest issue as an outpatient. I just think a day or two in the hospital and uh, some pain control and a consultation would be a good idea. Well, thanks to Jimmy McHugh for sending in that case. And of course, thanks to the patients who participate in these interviews so that we can all learn together. It's time for Big Stew with a little review. What a great review. I feel so much more confident in my approach to burns than I did before. And that's thanks to you all, Jess, Mel, and Dr. Kopari, for a great review. And in fact, although I have seen my share of burns over the years, the fact is is that I, like so many of us, got caught up on some of the details that aren't quite as important as they seemed at the time. And so this, I think, is a fantastic review that puts things really in their proper perspective. At any rate, as I said, apart from a few quirky observations, I think the best thing for me to do is what we know works best, which is some spaced repetition. Another voice reviewing the excellent points that were made. Well, spaced repetition. So what are those quirky observations, you ask? Ignore the burn. Well, remember when Dr. Kopari was talking about this concept of ignore the burn? And the point she was making, of course, was that We have to remember the resuscitation of the patient comes first and not the burn per se, even though that might be the most shocking thing that's in front of you. It got me to thinking that the same theme essentially applies to all special resuscitation situations. Whether you're talking about a patient with major burns, where again, it's shocking what you see in front of you in terms of the amount of pain that it can create and the smell and the sight. It's shocking. The same is true, though, also for traumatic amputation. And the big risk, of course, in those resuscitations is that if you're so preoccupied with this horrific looking mangled limb that you're thinking, well, we have to save that, and that was what was in the machine, et cetera, et cetera, that you forget about the ABCs. Near hanging is a topic that I recently talked to Dr. Anaba about at length. And this was his observation was that. One of the big issues in these cases is that we don't get to the resuscitation priorities soon enough and adhere to them strictly enough because, of course, we're distracted by all of the shocking nature of the special resuscitation, in that case, a near hanging. So it just seems to me that it's a common theme. Pregnancy, again, another instance where if you're too preoccupied with the pregnancy and the fetus, you lose the forest for the trees again. And so that sort of came to mind as a commonality in all special trauma resuscitations. When it comes to burns, this issue comes up right at the beginning of management in the field, actually. And this wasn't specifically emphasized. And that is when there's a significant burn and inhalation injury, there's a tendency among the pre-hospital providers to want to take that patient directly to the burn center, which is the center of excellence for dealing with burns, of course. But in the instance that there is an airway issue and that patient needs to be intubated, that can be a major error if there's a closer emergency department that can first stabilize that patient, especially their airway. And then secondarily, the patient can be transferred to the burn center. And so that's a very, very important forest for trees issue that comes up right off the bat. It's better to be outside. And the second point, 
I mention, somewhat in jest, but maybe because it's a good memory aid, and that is, folks, it's much, much safer to be outside in the great outdoors. In terms of trauma, if you're talking about things like blast injury, if you have an explosion, of course, you're way, way more at risk because of the multiplying effect of the shockwaves inside, for example, than you would be outside. We talk about fire, smoke inhalation. It's way, way safer to be outside than in an enclosed environment. And of course, that's the main factor when it comes to things like carbon monoxide poisoning and for cyanide toxicity. And so the bottom line is stay outdoors. Okay, now for one overall review of Burns to get all the important teaching points in there that have been discussed. So let's start with major burns. Airway. When are you going to intubate the patient? If there are signs of airway edema, and the most important one is strider, and if there are signs of breathing problems, pulmonary edema, and that would be an elevated respiratory rate, crackles, distress with breathing, Both of those are indications to intubate. You want to err on the side of intubation if they're there. With respect to what drugs you use, it's okay to use succinylcholine in the first 24 hours. And when it comes to circulation, the overwhelming message here is don't overhydrate them. Keep track of the fluids you're giving them and don't give too much because when the ball gets rolling, it tends to run away. And so, All this business about calculating the body surface area, the main message is that we tend to overestimate it, and it's not that important in the initial resuscitation. Now, of course, if someone asks you, what is the formula for how much fluid this patient is supposed to get in the first 24 hours, you can tell them that now we're going with 2 milliliters per kilogram per body surface area of second and third degree burns. You can tell them that. But the fact is, is that we're going to go with only a modest amount of fluid in the initial resuscitation. They mentioned some very modest boluses there just to keep that IV going, basically, and leave the rest for later and for the Burns team. The overwhelming other major important point there is that the patient shouldn't be hypotensive. And if they are in shock, if the blood pressure is low, you really need to think of some other reason why they might be in shock. And so maybe they have a traumatic injury, like a spleen rupture. Maybe it's from a toxin that they've ingested. Maybe it's related to a C-spine injury and it's neurogenic. But the bottom line is, is you have to search for another cause if they're in shock. If there are circumferential burns, watch carefully for the signs of compartment syndrome. Label the pulses and elevate the affected extremities. The other major point that should be considered really early on is their pain medication situation. And they didn't really go into too much detail on this. And my feeling is that this is such a traumatic, painful situation that some sort of a low level of unawareness drug like ketamine, I think, would be a good idea in the mix. When it comes to exposure, The overwhelming take-home point here is to use a clean, dry sheet, the kind that are all over the place in a hospital, and not to put any goop, especially the silver sulfadiazine that people used to put on these things all the time. 
The history is really important, especially the timing, because the bad things that happen with time, the swelling, the airway edema, the pulmonary edema, and the edema that can cause compartment syndrome in circumferential burns, all develop over this sort of six-hour time frame where they really start to come into play. And so that's really important. Is there any toxin exposure? Did this happen inside or outside? And medical history, these are all really, really important for the history. For physical exam, let's emphasize the types of burns and how to identify them. Remember that primary burns are a sunburn, and so there should be no initial blistering. Those are treated with moisturizers and they heal in three to five days, as you probably have experienced a lot of us. Second-degree burns, like we said, can often be identified by this immediate blistering, and these go into the dermis. They take weeks to heal, but other than good wound care, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, and pain medication, they do quite well. Third-degree burns, in my experience, can usually be identified by their smell. There's that certain distinct odor of the charring of the flesh and of the fat, and these, of course, go into the fat. They often appear white and black with black charred areas. And one of the hallmarks on examination is that they're insensate, which, of course, means that they can't feel something, for example, light touch on physical exam, but it doesn't mean that they're not painful. Some people misconstrue the term with being painless, but of course it's incredibly painful. It's just that they can't feel anything over that skin. And Dr. Kopari reminds us that those third-degree burns heal by contracture only, which is why the treatment consists of excision, which makes it so different than the other types. Okay, another really important little packet of information to remember are the signs of non-accidental trauma, the suggestive signs. So Clinically, there's an abnormal interaction with the parents, of course. Critically, especially with burns because they're so painful, any delay to care is important, especially a day or two days delay to care. And the physical exam findings that suggest a non-accidental trauma burn, linear demarcation, when a child is held in place, a limb is held in place, sparing of the flexor creases, Sparing of the soles or buttocks, again, when children are held in place against a surface, say, for example, in a bathtub, and whenever there's a brand pattern from a contact burn. And so all of those are concerning for abuse and or neglect. Another important thing to review, because it really affects the patient outcomes, is the transfer criteria to a burn center. And so, again, those are a partial thickness or more burn of more than 10% body surface area, burns involving the face, hands, genitals, feet, or perineum. They really have a lot of rehabilitation needs. Any third-degree burns, any electrical or chemical burns, any airway involvement along the way, and patients that are likely to have psychosocial needs like victims of abuse and neglect. And finally, for minor burns that you're going to treat and street, so to speak, that are not going to go to the burn center, the basic principle is that you're going to unroof the second-degree burns. You're going to take that initial skin layer off and dress them with a non-strict dressing once daily using bacitracin or neosporin, not silver 
sulfadiazine, and they should get tetanus. And if that means immune globulin by the CDC guidelines, they should get that too, but not antibiotics. Some final comments and peer review from Dr. Kopari. She wanted to remind us all and really sort of emphasize what was said, that it is okay and encouraged to treat these patients with an acute burn, with pain meds and anxiolytics, especially on that first assessment and that first debridement. You don't want to make this a traumatic experience for them. Otherwise, every other follow-up visit, they are going to have so much fear. So get them real nice and comfortable if you're going to do anything that's painful or just simply treating their pain. Also remember that referring to a burn center is not the same thing as transferring to a burn center. Referring to the burn center could be as simple as making a clinic follow-up appointment or maybe having that discussion with your burn specialist and not necessarily transferring based on that, but arranging for close outpatient follow-up. Finally, if you are going to need to admit a burn patient to the hospital, then you should make sure that that is at a hospital that actually does have a burn surgeon. So in that case, you are going to transfer the patient to a burn center. Thanks again so much to Dr. Kopari for her excellent input and peer review of this episode. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Jess, Mel, Dr. Kopari. I loved it. Burns. When they laugh, I smoke. When they stop laughing, I talk. Are they laughing? Are they laughing now? Yes. They're not smoking. <laughs>